Welcome to Myth versus Craft. Welcome to episode 17 of Myth vs. Craft. My guest today is the brilliant guitarist Josh Smith. Josh belongs to an elite group of musicians that is carrying the torch for blues and blues rock music. I first learned of Josh when I started seeing him on a number of YouTube videos playing alongside other guitar greats like Joe Bonamassa, Kirk Fletcher, and Matt Schofield. Though Josh's guitar playing is centered on the blues, 14 plus years working as a successful session musician in Sideman have broadened his musical palette. His music is infused with jazz, soul, and R&B, and his playing is inventive and full of conviction. In addition to his session work, Sideman gigs, and solo career, Josh built a recording studio from scratch and is looking forward to producing other artists. Let's start by listening to snippets from three of his songs. Josh, it's a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking me on. Oh, of course. I understand that your parents loved music, but they didn't play any instruments. Were they the first ones to expose you to blues music? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, neither of my parents played an instrument, but uh, they had a, my dad had a huge record collection. And uh, yeah, they both just loved music. They took me to concerts a lot when I was a kid. And uh, so I was just exposed to lots of great music growing up, lots of Motown, lots of blues, lots of jazz, lots of soul, and rock and roll. You know, my dad loved Rolling Stones, Allman Brothers, and Bruce Springsteen, and my mom loved Otis Redding and, you know, Wilson Pickett and stuff like that, and uh, kind of went from there. I heard that your dad bought you your first guitar at age three, right after your sister was born, but you didn't take your first guitar lesson until you were six. Right. What prompted you to start taking the lessons when you turned six? Nobody did. It was actually my choice. I just kind of beat up on the guitar for a few years and carried it around. And uh, they tell me that, you know, when I was six, I asked them, could I take lessons? So we, you know, started looking around for a teacher. But it was it was me. I asked. 
at uh, age 12, you played in front of an audience for the first time. Yeah. I was a bit older, maybe 14, when I first played on stage. It was a talent show. And I remember to this day that I felt electricity running down my right arm as I started playing. <laughs> Do you remember how you felt that first time? Yeah, very much the same. Uh, it was, you know, like a, a local blues jam where you sign the list and you go up and play for a, a couple of tunes. And, uh, you know, the audience, it was, it was really busy cause it was a very famous club and their Monday night jam was well known. So it was packed and I got up and played and the audience immediately like erupted, you know, cause I was really short little kid with long hair and baseball cap. So they went crazy. It didn't, I could have played, you know, worse than anybody. It wouldn't have mattered. They went crazy, but just that feeling of the audience, like being excited about the fact that I was on, on stage was like a huge deal. It's definitely cemented right then that that was what I was going to be doing for the rest of my life, for sure. You were also into playing baseball. How did you balance your music with baseball? It was difficult because uh, those were really the only two things I, I loved, and I only wanted to be, you know, a baseball player or, or a guitar player, but I was just better at guitar than baseball. And once high school came around, it became obvious that I was meant to be a guitar player, and it just kind of took care of itself. You were in uh, junior high, I believe, when Nirvana and the other Seattle bands got huge. Yeah. Yet you were deep into blues music, and I understand that you didn't really care much for grunge. Was it isolating to be on such a different wavelength from your peers? Uh, you know, yeah. because that, And that's what led me to go into play with adults and go into those jams, because when I would try to play with kids my age, number one, I was usually more advanced than a lot of kids my age, and number two... Even if they were good musicians, they were definitely not into the kind of music that I was in. So it, it was hard to connect with them on that level and find common ground, you know, and get together with, with a group of kids and find something I wanted to play with them or that they wanted to play with me. So that's what led me for sure to playing with adults at such a young age. Did spending so much time with adults make it weird to be around kids your age or could you just flip a switch and, and be a kid? Yeah, no, it didn't make it weird. It flipped. I, I could just flip a switch. The things that being around adults like that from a young age changed the most for me was was my feelings about more adult-type behaviors, things like, like drinking and smoking and drugging. And it's, it's definitely the reason why I've never smoked a cigarette, never drank a beer, never smoked a joint, because I was around it so much as a young kid, and I would notice guys playing worse when they were high or drunk. And uh, at that time, I, all I cared about was playing and and, and getting as good as I can get. So it, it made a big impression, like, I'm not going to ever do that. And that, that stuck till this day. I read uh, Brad Paisley's autobiography some time ago, and he wrote that his father told him when he was young, you don't have to be good right now, and that's great, but someday you're not going to be that cute. It seems like you realized early on that being precocious gave you many opportunities, but you had to work really hard if you wanted to make it. Where do you think the self-awareness and work ethic came from? Um, number one, it, it came for sure just from wanting to be as good as I could be as a player. And that's kind of still where I am today. It's like always number one on my list is learning new stuff, being as good as I can, getting better and better. And, and absolutely number one goal is finding my own voice on my instrument. So I realized really soon, cause you know, at that time I was really into Hendrix and Stevie Ray Vaughan and B.B. King and Albert King. And when I would play that stuff, I would try to play exactly like those guys. And it becomes clear, you know, that when you're studying your heroes, none of them were copying anybody else. You know, they were doing their own thing. And I realized I needed to be doing my own thing. You started writing your own material and singing very early on. Yeah. Did you realize on your own that this was important if you wanted to make a career in music? Or did someone point you in the right direction? The singing thing, guys kept hammering me on it. They'd be like, Josh, if you're really going to, you know, do this full time, be a, be a, you know, if you don't want to just be a guitar player, if you want to be a blah, blah, blah star, you got to sing, you know. So I forced myself to sing from a, an age when I really shouldn't have been singing. <laughs> and, uh, you know. You mean because your voice still hadn't changed? Yeah, my voice hadn't changed. And I just, you know, I was, I should have not dove in completely head first because I wasn't prepared, but. But, you know, that's the way life is. Singing is really hard. And I, it's still something I work on constantly. And I feel like now, you know, 20 plus years later that I'm I'm a competent singer finally, you know. it's But it's like it never came easy like guitar did. 
and the the writing side was always really important to me from from right away when I started like having my own band and and doing records and things. I realized quickly like you know that I wanted to be doing songs that had a connection to me that weren't just you know the same old covers and whatever if I was going to put something out with my name on it, I wanted to actually be my product. I read that you spent about eight years, uh, I believe between the ages of fourteen and twenty two just constantly putting out records, playing hundreds of shows each year, yeah. but not making a lot of progress, making very little money. And there came a point where you decided that you wanted to move to LA and work as a sideman and work as a session musician. When you reached that fork in the road, did you at any point consider doing something outside of music or was that just flat out not even an option? Yeah, no, not even an option. I knew I was a good enough guitar player to do something playing my instrument and making a living. So, and honestly, I just didn't have any other skills. You know, I, I could have gone to college. I'm a, you know, not to sound ridiculous, but I'm a smart guy. I mean, I, I, but I knew and it pissed my grandparents off that I didn't go to college, but I knew that's not, wasn't the path for me. I was going to start working and gigging. And, you know, when it, when it came time to kind of find a new path, I knew that path still involved music. And the same thing you struggle with today, you know, even as a 36 year old man, it's like, you know, I got days when you know, things suck and I, my calendar's not as full as I want it to be and blah, blah, blah. But what else am I going to do? You know, I, I, my skills only allow me to do this or go get a job at Guitar Center or Target or something, you know, uh, I, you know, so no, this is, this is it for me. And honestly, I think that's a big key to a lot of musicians having success is the guys that I know who have had big success, you know, in my arena, sideman session, they never had a backup plan either. They just, that was all they did was live, breathe, sleep, music, and guitar. And, you know, they weren't, you know, worried when things got tough because they, they didn't have some fallback plan. And I think, you know, unfortunately, that's part of trying to get to where you get. You got to be all in, like 100%. You you just preempted a question I was going to ask you uh, towards the end of the interview. And, and it was just that. If you thought that if someone has a backup plan, just the mere fact that they have a backup plan, it likely means that they're not serious enough about music to be able to make it. And it sounds like the answer is probably yes. I believe that 100%. I believe if you want to do this full time, you have to dive in. And you know what? If it, if it knocks you on your ass and breaks you, then okay. Then you make a, you make a decision to change and you find a way. I mean, because everybody finds a way to live. But... I, you can't go into it kind of half like, oh, I can always go back to my parents or go back to my job at the bank or whatever, because, yeah, then you're not serious. I listened to an interview with uh, uh, Matt Damon, the actor, where he said that anytime someone asks him if they should pursue a career in acting, he says no. His thinking being that if you can dissuade someone that easily, they weren't meant to do it anyway. I imagine you have uh, uh, young musicians ask you for advice all the time. Yeah. What do you tell a 16-year-old who wants to be a musician and, and asks you for advice? I tell them partially what I just said. And then the other thing I tell them is take every gig you can possibly take. Like play the worst gigs imaginable for $50, $20. Any singer-songwriter who calls you to come play acoustic down, you know, duo somewhere or any top 40 pop, pop gig reading chord charts all night. Because, man, you never, ever grow as much as you do in those first five years when you're playing just gig after gig every night, even when most of the stuff you have no interest in playing. That's when you really grow your roots and, and find your foundation as a musician. J.D. Simon was on the show a few weeks ago, and he, um, he was lamenting how nowadays, just, just because of the, the shift in, in our culture, Live music is nowhere near as prevalent as it was even, you know, a couple of decades ago yeah. and how he had the opportunity, and in his case, it was in Nashville, to play four, five, six nights a week, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over years. And like you, he said that there's absolutely no amount of rehearsal or practicing or anything that can give you the same, the same value that you get from actually playing live. And he was lamenting how there just isn't, there aren't as many, nearly as many opportunities for kids nowadays to go out and play live. The, the opportunities aren't there. And also the ones that are there, the older guys are doing them because such things are dried up, you know. There's just not enough gigs to go around and there's more musicians. And and the other, the other side of that about these, you know, about kids now is kids are 
kids are playing better than ever now, but it's in some ways it's like a false sense of enlightenment because they have this YouTube thing where they know so much material now because all you got to do is go to Google and type in how do you solo with melodic minor or how do you do this or how do you do that? Right. And you'll find 8,000 examples on how to do that. And you can go do it that night at your gig. And not that that's a bad thing, but it does take some of the grunt work out of, you know, what, what my generation and certainly the guys before me had to do with their record players. And with me, it was tapes, you know, pausing and rewinding and pausing and rewinding and having no idea right. what I was listening to. You know, I couldn't just go on Google and find a slowed down version of this or, you know, the <laughs> isolated Van Halen guitar tracks weren't available to me. Going back to your move to LA, when you first arrived, what? how did you feel? How did you start getting work? Uh, I felt overwhelmed to some degree because there were so many good musicians here. Also overwhelmed by the cost of living. I had just gotten married and we moved, you know, sight unseen into a house that we were renting and my wife had a job. And we knew to survive initially, I would have to get a, a job immediately. And, you know, there was no way I was going to make enough money playing guitar, you know, in the first six months that I moved there. So I did. I got a day job. It's still the only one I've ever had. I was testing video games at THQ, which was, you know. <laughs> that's that's not bad for a day job. Yeah, I love video games. So I still hated every minute of the, you know, getting up and having to work a nine to five. I'm, I'm not made for that, but it, it was all right. But yeah, it took me. It really took me a year to find my footing and to be having enough work where I could be comfortable that I wasn't going to put my family on the street, you know. And also the biggest thing was that, you know, I've had my wife to fall back on now for, you know, 17 years. And without her, none of this is I, – I couldn't reach the levels I'm reaching or be reaching for the levels I'm trying to get to next. It's like, you know, because she's my rock. JD also um, talked about uh, being a session musician in, in Nashville, and he described how intense it could be, especially for the bigger acts and, and producers. And he talked about the importance of working quickly yeah. because you could piss off a lot of people if you ever slowed them down. How did you like doing session work? Or how? I mean, you mentioned that you have a session uh, after this conversation. How do you like doing session work? I, I love it. I love session work because I like – Number one, I think of myself, number one, as, you know, besides a guitar player, as an improviser. Like, that's what I enjoy doing the most is improvising. So to me, the studio is complete improvisation. Unless you come in and the producer plays you a, a demo that already sounds like a record and he says, match that, which those are the worst sessions. The rest of it is awesome. It's like, you know, you listen down one time, maybe they have a chart, maybe they don't, maybe you scribble out a chart real quick, and they're looking for you to create something on the spot that helps their composition. And that is thrilling. And yeah, not every time do you do something they like and not every time are you the right guy for the call, but when it clicks, it's such a thrilling feeling. Cause I, I just love being creative like that. Just like actors end up forming um, strong bonds and, and working relationships with certain directors with whom they can collaborate really well. Do you find that there are certain producers or engineers or just folks with that call you over and over just because they know what to expect with you and, and what you give them fits what they're looking for and you just click? Yeah, I found that the, the work that I get over the years now of being here, which you're talking 13 years now, the work that I get is not necessarily because I'm I'm not the chameleon guy. So I don't get called for, you know, being perfect and nailing somebody else's tone or playing fingerstyle acoustic or playing doing this because I do everything. I get called because they want me to sound like me. So they're calling me to come in and be me, be rootsy, be soulful, add what I do to their thing because they hear what I do. So that forms long friendships and partnerships because those people really respect you as an artist. And that, yeah, that's, that's most of the work that I get called for. Not, it's not so much the other half. I wish I did get called for the other half of it, but you know, it's cool to, to get liked for what you actually do. Oh, for sure. For sure. As a sideman, you've played and toured with a bunch of acts. Yeah. Besides expanding your musical horizon, I figure you must have learned a bunch and noticed things that you wanted to emulate as well as things that you didn't want to do when working on your own projects. Do Does anything stand out as a particularly important lesson from being a sideman with other people? Yeah, well, like you said, a lot of it is, number one, I learned just a lot musically. 
because everybody has their own point of view. And yeah, sometimes you play music you'd never had any interest in playing before. So you always can pick up new things, you know, from stuff you've never done before. But then, yeah, also learning, seeing how guys carry themselves, seeing how, how you know, management, huge management companies and huge artists roll when they get to that level is, you know, you always can pick up new information that and advice and, and just, you know, glean things from this and that. That, that help you in your in your personal world. But yeah, it's it's some of that and a lot of just the new information you can add back to your own musical vocabulary too. You mentioned playing music that perhaps you didn't have any interest in playing, but you you get the job, you get the gig and you play it. Do you find do you find that that's a grind or by this point it's just, you know, you're playing music you and you have a positive outlook and you look at it as a learning opportunity? Or are there occasions in which it's just a pain and you just are really looking forward to a job being over? I'd like to say that it's all gravy and you love every minute of it, but that's not true. There's certainly, you know, some gigs that are worse than others. It's never a musical thing for me because I can normally find something I enjoy in any music or something I can learn something at least from any music that I'm getting hired to play. The grind part of it or the things that make gigs a drag is when the other stuff is not good and unfortunately in this business you deal with a lot of bullshit and you know so maybe it's management maybe it's you know your pay gets shady maybe the artist is an unreliable artist who is late for sound check every day and you know gets sick a lot because maybe they're doing shit they shouldn't be doing and cancels gigs and or they spring gigs on you five days before and then they get mad when you can't do it because you have other commitments but hey you're not on retainer it's that type of stuff that grinds you down and burns you out from from sideman type work but normally the music i can find cool things about it no matter what i uh, mentioned jd simo a few uh, moments ago he played in austin last week yeah uh, which is where i live and i went to see him and the show was outdoors and the temperature felt like it was in the 40s mm-hmm. And uh, I asked JD before the show if the weather affected his playing or how he warms up. And he told me that he never warms up and he welcomes different conditions, be it the weather or the room, because it forces him to play differently. And that's part of what he strives to do every night. How do you prepare to perform and, and, and what is your philosophy in terms of, of trying to play differently and try something new versus trying to refine or hone your voice and, and, and what you're trying to do on a regular basis? Um, that's an interesting question. I don't, pre- you know, prepare for climate or anything like that in a weird way. I don't warm up every gig because sometimes it's just not feasible. Sometimes you're rolling into the town or to the venue and you just set up and go. One interesting thing is I, I use really heavy strings. And besides the tonal benefits and the reasons I like heavy strings, one of the, the main proponents of it and why I use it is because it doesn't allow me to let's say mail it in any night I have to kind right. of uh, have to work I got to get my adrenaline up right away pretty much when, I, when I'm gigging to play with those strings so that enables me to kind of get into it no matter whether it's a s- small audience big audience uh, whether the sound sucks whether you know it's hot it's cold so that helps a little bit and then trying to balance being refined and let's say being trying to be perfect all the time with trying to go new places. A lot of that is how much you're on the road, how comfortable you are in your own skin and how comfortable you are with your bandmates. You know, for me, sometimes it's difficult because let's face it, I I don't tour year round doing my own thing. So a lot of times when I go on tour, it's a different lineup. I'll have a different rhythm section because I play with many of the greatest musicians in the world, but unfortunately they're in demand and busy and they can only afford to go out with me if they don't have something else going on because I'm not making millions, you know, so my lineup changes a lot. So it's hard to go for things when you're still just playing with guys who are, you know, you want to make sure they know your tunes and whatever. So yeah, I tend to go for more when I'm playing, if I'm in the middle of a tour, like if you catch me 10 days into a tour, I'm going for it a lot. And I don't mean I'm playing harder than I would have been playing the 10 days before or more into it, but I'm definitely going for more shit and trying out more shit because I'll have reached a comfort level with the rhythm section that, you know, JD's been with his, only done his thing now for five years with those guys. So he's all about that every night. I, I'm trying, I, it'd be nice if I could get to that point. That's a good point. 
You mentioned that the heavy strings, and I believe you play 13s, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that the heavy strings help you get into a zone, uh, and, and regardless of the audience, the, the sound. That said, are you able to play at your best when your sound just isn't there? Because I know you're really meticulous about your sound, and a lot of what you do is improvisational in, in nature. I'm wondering if, if you're just the sound is not there, does it ever prevent you from hitting 100% of what you could have reached had the sound been there? Sure. I I would say, I wouldn't say it it helps me, it hinders me from hitting 100. It hinders me from going above 100, from finding that like special zone where, you know, you just really just fall into, you know, you know that feeling when you just fall into shit that you weren't expecting to do. And the, and when actual actual magic happens, that's when, yeah, the tone needs to be hitting on all cylinders. But normally if I have my own gear, I'm there. My problem is I'm not that guy because of the strings, especially that I can't get up on somebody else's guitar or especially somebody else's guitar and somebody else's amp. And, and, you know, there's some guys who can get up with any guitar and it's like, man, they always sound amazing. They could play a guitar that's set up like shit that needs a fret job and it doesn't matter. (laughs) I can't do that because I'm so used to playing with those strings. I have to kind of have my guitar. Being as experienced as you are, does the size or enthusiasm of the audience affect you much anymore? Yeah, sure. I mean, because that's another part of the equation. If an, Not necessarily the size, but the enthusiasm. If a crowd is really into it and egging you on, you're going to go other places than you would have gone from a static crowd that's just out there that claps at the end of every song. So it doesn't, cl- you know, even when it's, you know, an, an audience, like in the UK, it's weird. They don't clap after solos as much as they do everywhere else. They clap at the end huh. of songs, but they're quiet during the whole song. So when you first go you there, think it's, it's more un- of a matter of respect, like listening and letting you finish your performance. Yes. But sometimes it's unnerving as a soloist, you know what I mean? <laughs> so you got to get used to things like that when you're on the road. It's different in every freaking country the way that they react. Like Germans are crazy compared to even Americans. You know, they're so into it and they give you instant feedback on everything you do. In Switzerland, they're super polite, like in the UK. You know what I mean? And in in Norway, they're crazy. But in Sweden, right next door, they're not (laughs) as crazy. You know, they're a little more reserved. And when you're playing quiet, you can hear a pin drop. Sometimes that's really nice too, you know? I uh, understand that your very first guitar teacher noticed that you had really good time. And this was when you were (laughs) six. And you consider good time to be one of the most important, if not the most important quality of a great musician. I've had other guests talk about the importance of being a good listener, which is particularly important in in improvisational music. What qualities do you look for in bandmates? If you could sit down and really cherry pick who you want to play with for the next six months straight, or, or longer, indefinitely, what qualities do you look for? I guess in the rhythm section specifically. I look for guys who have listened to an extreme breadth of music because I have listened to a large breadth of music. So I want guys who, if I say, hey, man, let's give this a feel like what Steve Ferroni did with Average White Band. I want a drummer who understands that. You know what I mean? Or if I say you know, let's make this feel like Tower Power, or let's make this feel like James Brown, or let's make this feel like Otis Rush, you know, playing it here or there. It's like, I, I so I look for guys who are well-rounded, who have listened to a lot of music, and who respect, especially respect blues, because unfortunately, a lot of super high-quality musicians, jazz guys especially, which is hysterical to me, a lot of jazz guys, they like, you know, they're, we're over blues now, you know what I mean? And uh. it's silly because there wouldn't be any jazz without blues. But, you know, it's like, and it's not just jazz, guys. It's all musicians. It's like, oh, I can play blues. It's just three chords. I can do that. No problem. And so if if, if, if a musician has that attitude, I tend to not get along with them, no matter how great they are. Because for me, what I'm looking for is a guy who respects a, a large amount of music, has listened to a large amount of music, and then, to flip it, can play with soul in any style, which not a lot of guys right. can do. And then, yeah, you got to have good time. Because if you don't have a good time, I'm, I can't st- I'll go insane. <laughs> I've uh, heard Pete Thorne mention many times that being a nice guy is hugely important to making it as a musician. Yeah. The argument being that all, all things being equal, people are going to hire the, the more likable person. Absolutely. On the other hand, uh, Philip Sace shared that he's found that sometimes people mistake kindness for weakness. 
you seem like a really nice guy, and I imagine that this has worked in your favor anytime you've auditioned for a gig uh, as a sideman or, or for session work. Yeah. Do you think that being nice is as big a bonus when pursuing your solo career? No, I think it's a bigger bonus in the sideman and session area because then then you have to be concerned, especially the sideman area when you're touring. It's who does that artist actually want to be locked in a bus with for two months and, and airports right. and planes. And they will always choose the better hang than the better musician because you, you just don't want to be around guys who are no fun to be around or they bring you down. Now, in the solo career, when you're the leader of a band or of an organization, sometimes you have to be a dick. It's unfortunate because I don't like being a dick. I, I can't stand confrontation. I don't like fighting with anybody. But it's like... You know, sometimes you have to be that guy when you're the leader of the organization. So I think I think with the sideman thing, yes, being kind and, and it helps a lot because they will always choose kindness. But on the other side, I try to just be kind all the time anyways. But you have to be at least willing to go there when you have to go there to stick up for, you know, the things you need to stick up for. I mean, I'm a nice guy, you know, as silly as that sounds. I'm a nice guy most of the time. I mean, that's, you won't find anybody who really doesn't like me, I hope. (laughs) But yeah, you you know, you just have to at least be willing to stand up for yourself. I uh, get the sense that you're not only a nice guy, but, uh, and a hard worker, but you're also pragmatic and have a a, a can-do attitude. And I say pragmatic because I know that you... You know, you do session work, you do product demos, you you are a sideman, you do your own. Th- I mean, you find a way to to make it work. And and Pete Thorne is another person I feel about that way, in that he does a bunch of different things, all of them related to music. And I say a real can-do attitude because I heard stories about you looking up Bob Bradshaw yeah. because you'd heard so much about him and you figured, hey, why not look him up and have him build your rig? Yep. Or how you looked up Alexander Dumble in the phone book and got a hold of him. Yep. So you seem like a really positive guy. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier some of the times that, that the job can, can be a grind. But have you had any moments when you truly felt discouraged and just didn't know if you had it in you to continue pushing forward? Or have you not had many lows since you started doing this? No, I've, I've had moments like that. We all have. But never one that would push me, you know, to, to giving up or to putting down the instrument. Well, putting down the instrument isn't even an option. It's like, you know, drinking water. But... uh yeah, everybody has those those times when they're down in the dumps a little bit. And, you know, guitar players are an egocentric bunch who, you know, when you, it's like the joke about how many guitar players take a screw in a light bulb. Well, yeah, everybody feels that way when you see someone who does something kind of in your lane, being more successful than you. And, you know, you get those jealous pangs in your heart, you know, and it's like, you know, that's life though. I mean, it's up and down. This this business is up and down. I have years where I do really good and I'm riding high. And then you have years where you're scraping by and, you know, taking every gig you can. And that's just the nature of the beast when it comes to being a professional musician. But every day that I get to strap on a guitar and, and somebody pays me money to do that is a million times better than any other day I could have had. <laughs> I uh, you mentioned um, you mentioned artists who who are very successful. I think of immediately of your friend uh, Joe Bonamassa yeah. and the incredible success he's had playing you know guitar centered rock blues music. In today's musical landscape, do you think there's room for multiple guitarists to reach that level of success, or do you think it's a low point of sorts for rock for blues music and and things hopefully ebb and flow and it'll and it'll come back up. But do you think there's room for multiple artists to reach Joe Le- Joe's level of success right now? Oh, I have to believe that there is, you know, hopefully. Uh, whether it's the truth or not, I'm not sure. Um, what Joe has accomplished is truly amazing. And in some ways, it defies logic. He's, he's a little bit of an anomaly in that I can't necessarily explain how he's reached where he's reached. Other than the fact that he's an amazing musician and he's an incredibly hard worker. But so are a million other guys that we know and that I know. Right. And, you know, it's just, you know, some of that is luck of the draw. How you connect to an audience and things, the right thing happens here and the right thing happens there. Joe is more than paid his dues and deserving of everything he's got. I mean, he's a incredibly hard worker who's been doing this an incredibly long time like I have. So, I yeah, it gives me hope that, look, it is doable because Joe's two years older than me. And it took him quite a long time to reach this level. 
But, yeah, I don't necessarily see other people even coming close. I mean, you got Gary Clark Jr. out there right now in the you know playing guitar and doing pretty well. But who other than that is really, you know, making it happen? Right? It's hard to think of anybody. Right. I um I mentioned Philip Says came on the show and and we talked a lot about about the industry about making it and and he he talked about something that happens to him on a regular basis which is someone will come to a show and come up to him and tell him I'm so and so, you know, with such I'm an agent, I'm a manager and whatever and I think you're great, but I could make you a star if you change this, 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 and this. Does that happen to you much? No. No, it doesn't happen to me much. Guys always have their opinion, but, uh, you know, how do I put this? You know, Philip's a really good-looking dude. I'm not necessarily that guy, you know? It's kind of the thing I was saying about Gary Clark Jr. Like, Gary Clark's a really good-looking young dude hip, wears cool clothes, you know, I'm not that dude, I'm older than these guys are, uh, I don't have delusions of being, you know, well, it used to be of being Stevie Ray Vaughan or Eric Clapton, now I don't have delusions of being John Mayer, you know what I mean, it's like, right. you know, I know where, where my lane is, you know, and, and Joe is the, the only kind of shining example I can follow, really, but no, I don't have a lot of guys tell me what to do, you know, I will say that with this last record that I put out, I followed advice more than I would have normally. I did what people asked. I played a much more rocking record than I probably would have done with way more guitar than my last two records probably combined. And you know what? To some degree, that's paid off because it's done much better in Europe than my last few did. So, you know, it's always good to maybe sometimes actually heed some people's advice. Do you have a clear vision of, of where you want to go or what you still want to accomplish? Or is your thinking more of a one step at a time, all that matters is if I'm making music, enjoying myself and moving forward? It's a fluid thing. It changes, you know, where I'm trying to get. Because, like I said, any day where I'm playing guitar and making a living is cool with me. Would I like to get to where I was playing nothing but Josh Smith 100% of the year? Yeah, I'm working on it. So, you know... That's that's my goal. I just want to get to where doing my thing full-time is self-sustainable, you know, and I think it's getting close. I know that you recently built your your own studio, and you spent a lot of time on it, and, and from what I've seen, it, it looks incredible, and it's a great space for you to do a bunch of things, ranging from, of course, recording to practicing to uh, making your product demos. I understand that many people or many artists began seeking you to produce their albums Especially after your a couple of albums ago, you put forth an album that was very ambitious and and really well arranged, and it, that seemed to catch people's attention, and and they started asking you to produce. Is that something that you're planning to do more of to produce other people? Absolutely, I'm really getting excited actually about getting to do that. You know, it's a passion of mine. Is the the blues industry is in a weird spot, and I just want people to make better blues records. So I'm all for helping people make better blues records. That's partially why I built this studio. Yeah, part of it was being pragmatic, you know, where, yes, I can do more gear demos. I can do more sessions by mail like my friend Tim does. I can do more, you know, instructional material, which I've been doing. And, you know, that's really, really important for, it's been really important for me the last few years as far as, far as income goes and mailbox money. So I can do all those things more. I can do much more of my own music and release much more product year-round the way Joe does. But yeah, eventually getting to produce other artists and guitar players, helping them find their voice, that has me very excited. And and ever since I've made it known that the studio is pretty much finished and we're operating, I've been getting literally bombarded, especially by guitar players from outside of the United States who are fans of mine, who are, would be like, are freaking out. Like, can I fly over and make my record with you? Will you help me produce it and help me with my tone and this and that. And I am so excited about doing those types of things. What uh, criteria are you, are you taking into account when, I mean, if you're receiving so many requests when evaluating them and deciding with whom you're going to work? Just guys that I think, number one, that I can at least hear what they want. You know, uh, if they, if they have a good way to explain what they're reaching for and I can hear it in, in the demos they send or in the material they've already recorded, you know, and, and then I can personally connect with. And then, yeah, I mean, unfortunately, a lot of it is, can they afford to pay me, you know, and it does it right. fit into my schedule? 
you know, because that's also difficult. If guys wants to come spend 10 days, two weeks to make a record and my home, those 10 days, two weeks. And when they can be over here, especially if they're from over out of the country, you know? Right. I haven't had any producers on the show, but I've watched and read many interviews with them. And it seems, and I'm fascinated by the skill set that like a director, apparently it takes to be a good producer and that it's not just a matter of, of having a good ear and arranging and, and being able to put together a good team and a good engineer, but a lot of it is just psychology, right? Being able to manage artists and and motivate them and not deflate them and, and talk to them the right way, yeah. uh, getting bands to get along with each other. Have you found any qualities that are consistent across producers with whom you enjoy working? Yeah. It's funny. For me, I don't need to be stroked ever. So I don't care about the ones who pet your ego and are trying to get you into the right frame of mind. A lot of guys need that. A lot of bands need that. The producers that make the biggest impression on me are the ones who actually have good creative ideas and maybe ones who really can play an instrument and come up with harmonic ideas or creative things or sound things. So I tend to try to live on that side if I'm in the production chair. I'm trying to make guys excited based on this was a great idea. Maybe I really heard something or, you know, maybe I hear something in what they're doing and I make a slight recommendation and that makes them excited. But, you know, and to me, the other part of being a producer that gets overlooked is time management and making a session move on in a way that doesn't drag and that guys don't get frustrated take after take on the same thing. A lot of producers struggle with that. To me, that's, that's a huge part of it is time management. Doing so much uh, so much session work, I imagine that has you know given you a wealth of experience oh, yeah. to to run sessions and and to and to that will translate over to being a producer. Do you typically? I mean, because you have to work so quickly as a session musician, when you work on your own projects, do you find that you work just as quickly, or do you find that you end up you know maybe going for five, ten takes, whereas had it been a session, you would have done it in one or two? No, I probably work even quicker on my own thing. Because I tend to come in very, very certain of what I want to occur. So I don't like to, to uh, linger on things. I like to be decisive. You know, if I like a take, I like to be like, okay, maybe we try one more and see if we can top it. And if we don't, it was like, no, I like that last take. Or if I'm certain that I, that I, I like this tone or this thing, I'm not going to labor over, you know what, that solo tone could be a little bit better. Or this could be, you know, a little fatter. Or this could be, you know, I like to be decisive and just move on and make decisions. Yeah, so I tend to, to work quickly. So on the engineering side, especially when you record your, your own stuff, uh, now in your own studio, does that translate into finding something that you think works well and perhaps going back to it on a regular basis because it works well and it allows you to move quickly? And you don't do, you end up not doing a lot of experimenting or trying new equipment because that just slows you down? No, no. And that's one of the good things about my partner in the studio, Lior, who has mixed all my records. He's incredibly experimental. So we balance off each other well. I'll be like, that's perfect. And he'll be like, no, let's try to put the amp in the corner and mic it from the back of the room <laughs> through a fan. And, you know, so, and, I, and I, I like that stuff too. I mean, come on, I love Jimi Hendrix, you know, so it's like, I'm all into finding new sounds, but a lot of times it'll be a sound that I kind of maybe already hear in my head, and then you're just trying to figure out how to get it, and then the chase is part of the fun, you know what I mean? Actually, this is completely random, but Eddie Kramer was at my studio yesterday, and I was asking him wow. a million questions like that. <laughs> are there clear patterns, and call them best practices, or do you just find that people are all over the place and doing things completely differently? Everybody does things completely different. You know what I mean? And a lot of these producers don't even know technical side at all. So they have engineers that they rely on for everything. They just know whether they like this or not. You know what I mean? But they don't know that, oh, wait a minute, that engineer, he's using the Glenn Johns thing to mic drums. They don't even know that that's why they like the way those drums sound. And, you know, so it's like everybody's all over the map and have things that they do better and understand more than the other person. And that's kind of the fun thing about making music is, and, and especially the session world is every, you know, session you walk into is its own world. And I try to take it as, it's like a little challenge trying to find, you know, your role in that little room when you walk into it every time. I think of Rick Rubin as perhaps being a, an example of a producer who, who doesn't have the engineering know-how that someone like Eddie Kramer would have given his background. 
Did Eddie, was he able to, did he share anything that just blew your mind or was it more of a bits and pieces here and there that you put away and, and we'll try out some at some point? No, he, he came over here to um, try out some gear and uh, he knows a friend, the, my, my partner, they have mutual friends. So he actually brought over some vintage pieces he had acquired and he needed to check them. So it was kind of crazy. Ah. He had me like singing through this U67 that he just bought. And uh, a couple Neve compressors and, and things. And we're just messing around. But it was funny watching him. We pulled up a drum track so we could test this Neve compressor. And he was twisting the knobs. And he wasn't even looking at the knobs when he was twisting him. He was just completely had his eyes closed and twisting knobs like a complete old school engineer. Doing everything by ear. And it was super inspiring. He just like found whatever sound best without looking down at the thing at all. And caring about how much this he was cutting, how much this he was adding, it was awesome. I've read so many interviews about engineers or producers who who play the console like an instrument or ride the fader like an instrument. You know, no automation and and how it's 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 an instrument. You know, when when the re, a really skilled engineer is actually recording something, and what yep. you're describing Eddie doing reminds me of that. Yep, absolutely. Has the vintage instrument bug bitten you at any point? I think of JD and how in love he is with with vintage instruments. Is do you have much of an affection for him or, or uh, yeah? Not I mean, really? I I love them with all my might, but unfortunately, my pocketbook does not love them with all its might. So <laughs> I don't have the kind of I have a lot of guitars, but not on the vintage arena like most of my friends, unfortunately. And uh, I hope to rectify that one day. <laughs> the crazy part is that. That you can buy, at least in my experience, you can buy a really, really great vintage amp, oftentimes for as much or less than what a, the new equivalent would cost. Sure. And I'm thinking mostly of, of uh, you know, maybe early silver face, like drip edge silver face fenders yeah. or, or even black faces that you can get for, you know, a grand or 1200 bucks or 1500 bucks. Guys playing Hot Rod DeVille's and stuff like that mystify me because you could go find right. any silver face <laughs> anywhere for $800, you know, that will eat it for lunch. Yeah. And then you look at guitars and then you're looking at a factor of 10, 20, 50 X for the price of a a vintage instrument versus a a new one. And it's kind of baffled me. I don't know if it's just a matter of supply and demand and there's fewer instruments out there, fewer guitars, and that's why they're up there. Or maybe they're just sexier than amps. I don't know. Well, yeah, they're sexier than amps. They're more exciting, you know, like take the Les Paul thing for, for instance, you know, hanging out with Joe, you know, I've played a lot of Les Pauls lately. And, uh, you know, and then in Europe last year, I got to spend a, a large amount of time with a real 60. And it was mind-blowing. And I'm not a Les Paul guy, but I, I carried around with me all tour, and it was really special. And so it had me searching, you know. But the the cost of a real 59 or 60 Les Pauls, right. you know, it's not even a, a doable thing. Like, even the the one that JD has, you know, which is not really just, it's not, you know, an original burst. It's kind of a Frankenstein. It's still worth a fortune. So it's like finding one like that is not even an option for me, you know? I mean, that's more than my house. So it's like, yeah, how do you kind of do There's a guitar I want more than anything right now at the moment, sitting down at Norm's. And now Norm is one of my closest friends. He'll give me always the best price he could possibly give me. But there's absolutely no way for me to pull this off, this guitar. I'm trying to figure out every way for me to sell this and that and that. But I just don't have anything I can sell that gets me close. You know what I mean? And it's like, that. yeah, that's frustrating. (laughs) Do you call him weekly to find out if it's still there? Yeah, it's still there. Without giving away uh, exactly what guitar it is, what kind of guitar is it? It's actually a jazz box, something I've been wanting to get for a long time. Oh, wow. Yeah, I won't give it away because, unfortunately, I fucked up royally two years ago with this 57 Strat that is my all-time dream guitar that has an incredible story to it. And when I told the story about having found the guitar seven years ago and then lost track of it, and then it showed up again, and I am trying to figure out how to make the money. And I'm like, this is it's meant to be. It showed up again out of the blue, and it's magic, this guitar. One of my Facebook friends bought the guitar before I could figure it out. So, uh, yeah. Man, that's that's harsh. But what I, I understand happens is a lot of uh, collectors, or, or maybe not quite collectors, but folks out there who are not professional musicians and have 
have vintage instruments, apparently they will loan them to people and or loan them to artists. And I think part of it is is just plain generosity. And part of it perhaps is the thrill of having a really, really incredible guitar player play your instrument, right? So I'm, I'm wondering if if maybe that's one way for you to maybe get your hands on, on a couple of really, really cool vintage instruments. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to have friends, you know, who have gone, you know, Joe will always let me borrow anything. And that's a nice feeling. I have a little bit of ambivalence about borrowing guitars of that caliber and that price, you know what right. I mean? But yeah, sometimes you got to take advantage of that. But yeah, I, I tend to be to err on the side of, you know what, it's probably better that I don't fall in love with somebody else's billion dollar guitar because then I won't want to give it back. <laughs> yeah. Other than that 57 Strat, are there any any guitars lately that you've played that just blew your mind? Yeah, this one that's at Norm's, which I won't say what it is, is mind-blowing. And uh, that burst that burst completely changed my th- feelings about guitars. I played it for three weeks straight every night. I sweat on it. They let me put 13s on it. And it was mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And it made me have to find a Les Paul. And I have a nice one that was made in Germany, uh, a copy of that guitar. I actually took the real one to them, and they measured it up. And it's really excellent. But, yeah, it's not a, it's not a real one. You know what I mean? It's, it don't have, like, that much magic. Joe even gave me an original wiring harness out of a 60 Les Paul to put into my clone. And that even took it up uh-huh. another 5%. That's amazing guitar. But, but yeah, that that's the best guitar I've played in years and years and years. Wow. Well, I, I wish you the best of luck finding, uh, well, f- with the guitar at Norms first and foremost, and then uh, and then continuing your, your journey to, to, to fill out your stable. Thanks, buddy. Josh, I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I know you are super busy. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for asking. Anytime. <laughs>